Welcome to the Public Morality. The Civil War remains America's greatest crisis, but in the aftermath, the period between 1865 and 1877, commonly referred as Reconstruction, though it began as a moment when America might actually realize its 1776 commitments of liberty and equality, but by its conclusion came to symbolize the nation's ongoing arrested development on race. I'm joined by one of the nation's foremost authorities on the Reconstruction period, Eric Foner. Professor Foner is a DeWitt Clinton Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia University. He has penned myriad books on the topic of Reconstruction and has twice won the Pulitzer Prize for History. Professor Eric Foner, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, let, let's begin. What is... What do you define as the Reconstruction era? What are we talking about, and what, in, in your view, defines it? Well, I uh, use Reconstruction to describe two different things. One is a particular time period of American history, like uh, the Gilded Age or the New Deal. Or Reconstruction is usually dated from the end of the Civil War to 1877, the so-called bargain that ended the disputed election of 1876 and ended Reconstruction. Although since historians can never agree, some of them think Reconstruction went longer than that, maybe up to 1890, we can talk about that. But it's a time period of American history after the Civil War. But I think more deeply, Reconstruction is a process, the historical process by which the United States tried to come to terms with the results of the Civil War the most important of which was the end, the destruction of the institution of slavery. What did it mean that we had four million people who had been slave now free? Were they gonna, what did it mean to be a free person in America? What were their rights? Would they be citizens? Would they have the right to vote? Would they have the same economic opportunities? So my first definition is a specific time period. My second definition suggests we are still grappling with those issues. In other words, Reconstruction never ended in some sense. Hmm. Uh, when the writer William Dean Howells wrote The American Public Wants Tragedy with a Happy Ending, did, did, did he have Reconstruction in mind? I'm just listening to your last answer. Sounds like he was thinking about Reconstruction when he said it. <laughs> well, Reconstruction doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, you know, it, it's a remarkable time period. It's an it's a era when for the first time, this country tried to be an actual democracy for all people, not just the whites. Um, uh, there were great gains made uh, in the lives of African-Americans and many other Americans. Uh, but uh, of course, the result was a backlash, a violent backlash. Reconstruction is a time period when we saw the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and other groups using terrorism. And this is domestic terrorism, to use a modern phrase. Uh, which succeeded in overturning uh, a good number of these governments that have been established in the South. And um, then other things happen we can talk about, but in the end, of course, Reconstruction is abandoned by the country. Hmm. Um, not just the South, but the country as a whole. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't have a happy ending. On the other hand, it's not totally negative either. Many achievements... Uh, came out of Reconstruction, uh, many of which 
were not reversed and continued the establishment of the black church as a fundamental institution. Black churches had existed before the, before the Civil War, but they now became much, much bigger, much more self-determined. Um, you know, things like that. The, um, the establishment of black educational institutions, the so-called, you know, historically black colleges, most of them came out of Reconstruction. Uh, and one could go on and on. So, um, you know, those things didn't go away, uh, but the political gains, the right to vote, the right to hold office, the establishment of an interracial democracy, those were by 1900 pretty much reversed. Mm -hmm. uh, given your extensive uh, study in this area, uh, what, in your view, uh, is often neglected w in the public discourse when we're talking about Reconstruction? What, 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 what do we often miss? Well, sadly, we miss the whole thing sometimes. I mean, you know, I have written a lot about Reconstruction. I've written books. I've written articles. I've been the key uh, advisor on a tele PBS documentary series that uh, Henry Louis Gates did a couple of years ago. Uh, but the fact is, most Americans know rather little about Reconstruction, although that is beginning to change for reasons both good and bad. Um, the Trump administration and the events since the election have drawn a lot of people's attention to Reconstruction, the battle over the right to vote, the disputed election, impeachment. These are all Reconstruction things that have just happened in our, you know, in the last few months, um, how to deal with domestic terrorism. Um, in other words, one of the things we, that people don't, uh, are not aware of uh, is simply that re Reconstruction issues are still on our agenda. Who should be a citizen? That's a Reconstruction question, and it's being fought out every day on our borders. Uh, who should have the right to vote? I don't need to tell you that in legislatures around the country right now, there are efforts to limit the right to vote. Should African-American men have the same right to vote as everyone else. Well, that's a reconstruction issue we are still fighting over. So I think what people miss is not just a series of historical facts, but the fact, but that the relevance of the reconstruction period to the struggles that are going on right now in this country. Hmm. Um, st staying with that theme, um, the 13th Amendment, uh, one of the reconstruction amendments, which uh, abolished slavery was uh, passed and ratified and ratified. But what I'm hearing you say is that freedom did not equate to equality. Yeah, sadly, that is the case. I mean, the 13th Amendment, I mean, one of the important things about Reconstruction is these three amendments, the subject of a book that I published a couple of years ago called The Second Founding, um, the three amendments, the 13th, 14th and 15th, all transformed the Constitution into something that it had never been before, one based on the idea of equality for all Americans, regardless of race. They had never experienced that before the Civil War. Um, so um, the 13th Amendment abrogates or the, the entire institution of slavery. You know, Lincoln had freed many slaves, not all of them, but many of them in the Emancipation Proclamation, but that didn't destroy the legal structure of slavery. Slavery is created by state law, and until those laws are wiped away, either by being repealed or by a constitutional amendment, slavery can still exist. But the 13th Amendment abrogated the institution of slavery. But if, as you said, it raised as many questions as it answered. 
what it, what does it mean to be a free person? You have four million people going from slavery to freedom. Well, what does that mean? What comes along with being free in America? What does it mean to abolish slavery? You know, slavery had all of these different uh, aspects. It, it not only was the buying and selling of human beings, it was the denial of education. It was the, you know, of, it was the institutionalization of racism. Was racism also being abolished? There were some Northern Republicans who said, yeah, that, that's part of the abolition of slavery. We've got to abolish all racial inequalities. But many others said, no, no, that's way too much. The, fourth, the 13th Amendment is, it can't do that. But you know, your basic question is, is correct. Ending, ending slavery is more complicated than one might think. <laughs> because, so many, because slavery is the foundation of a whole social order. So when slavery is abolished, what is going to take its place? Slavery is a system of labor. Well, what system of labor is going to come in now? Slavery is a system of race, as we said. Slavery is a system of politics in which the big planters are running the whole country, really, for most of the time before the Civil War. What's going to happen to the politics of slavery? Uh, and many other things. So it, it, much of Reconstruction is fighting out those questions. What follows from the end of slavery? Hmm. You know, when, when I was preparing uh, for us to have this conversation, I, I, I reflected on, and these are my words, that Reconstruction reflects a inverted order if you would, of, of uh, Charles Dickens in the sense that it was the worst of times with the Civil War and the best of times after 87 years of kicking the can down the road, the nation would try to move closer to that utopian, more perfect union and embrace liberty and equality. But then April 14th, 1865 occurs, President Lincoln's assassinated, and Andrew Johnson is the new president. How does Johnson impact this whole Reconstruction era that, you, that you've talked about? Well, it's ironic. Uh, uh, you know, yes, Johnson was completely unequipped to be president. Let me just put it that way. He, had, he was deeply, deeply racist. He had no sense of northern public opinion. He was unable to work with Congress. Uh, his whole his idea of Reconstruction was, OK, black people are free. Yep. Go back to work on the plantations. Don't expect to have any say in politics or anything like that. Yeah, now you get paid a little bit, but um, this is a white man's government, and it's going to remain that way even though the Civil War is over and slavery has been abolished. Now, you know, CNN ran a um, one of these polls they sometimes do of historians just a couple of weeks ago to rank the presidents from the best to the very worst. Johnson is a strong contender at the bottom as the worst president. In fact, I would say if we put aside the most recent president, Johnson has a strong claim to being the <laughs> number one at the bottom, so to speak. I, I, don't uh, want, I don't want to disagree with you, sir, but I think there are multiple claimants vying for that position. Yeah, there are. We've had, a, <laughs> we've had quite a few. We've had quite a few presidents who somehow didn't measure up. But um, James, I think actually James Buchanan came in last mm -hmm. uh, in this particular poll. Yeah. But um, but so all that, yeah, Johnson was a disaster. Uh, he couldn't work with Congress to set up a just reconstruction plan. But here's the irony. Johnson's obstructionism, Johnson's racism created an impasse which was the creative element. The Republicans in Congress had to figure out, well, what are we going to do now that Johnson won't work with us? 
and they began to develop their own ideas and moved in a more radical direction. So the um, so Johnson's incompetence actually pushed toward a more egalitarian. It pushed Congress toward a more egalitarian uh, reconstruction, as embodied in the Fourteenth Amendment, which created equality before the law for all Americans, regardless of race, and then the Fifteenth Amendment, which tried to guarantee the right to vote for all. Uh, African-American men. Uh, later on, these things were pretty much uh, abrogated or became dead letters. But nonetheless, putting those in the Constitution was a radical step forward. And uh, weirdly, if Johnson had been more cooperative with Congress, they might not have gone that far, you know. Uh, so it's a very complicated thing. But I would have to say that it was a disaster that Johnson became president. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, before, we, before we continue, I want you to know that we will probably get text messages from the descendants of Franklin Pierce wanting to know why he was not included on your <laughs> illustrious list. So, <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Franklin Pierce, uh, I, I know very little about Franklin Pierce except uh, one of my old professors You say, here is the total wisdom of Franklin Pierce, this one sentence. When I appoint someone to office, I make one friend and a hundred enemies. <laughs> In other words, the power of patronage is not so valuable because everybody expects. Anyway, that's a different point. No, no, we no. No, it's fine. Him. You just made me think I heard someone say, uh, but to know very little about him is to know him well. So. <laughs> right, right. right. Uh, I'm speaking with Columbia University history professor Eric Foner about the impact of America's Reconstruction Era, 1861, officially 1861 to 1877. Uh, Professor Foner, we were talking about Andrew Johnson, and, you know, it's just sort of uh, his less than admirable qualities as, as commander-in-chief, but he's also an enigma in the sense that he blamed the planter class for the Civil War. He yeah. saw poor white Southerners as the true victims. Uh, but he is that and he was, yeah, he, that's exactly right. I mean, he was he was probably the poorest person who ever became president. In other words, where he started out, he was like an indentured servant. Lincoln started out in very humble circumstances, but he was never an indentured servant, which didn't you weren't a slave, but you certainly weren't really free either. Um, and Johnson worked his way up. But he oh, yes, he always felt he, now he owned a couple of slaves. He wasn't a planter or anything like that. Uh, he attacked the what he called the slaveocracy, the rich planters. He felt they were exploiting not just the slaves, but the poorer whites in Tennessee, where he uh, made his career. Um, and he thought that with the end of slave, you know, he stayed loyal to the Union. He thought that secession was something that the poorer whites were being dragged into by these uh, well-to-do planters. And uh, it was treason. He stayed in the Senate when his state seceded, which was a fairly courageous thing to do. Um, and he eventually had to come along with, when Lincoln put forward emancipation, Johnson had to accept it, obviously. But he wasn't, he was anti-slave owner, but not anti-slavery. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. As you said, he felt that the poorer whites who got no education from the government, who with you know no economic benefits, it was all for the big rich planters, uh, that they were the ones who now should take over in the South. Uh, he didn't think blacks should have any voice, but he tried to keep the planter class off to the side also so that poorer whites would take over Southern government. It didn't work out that way. The poorer whites voted for all these rich planters. Um, 
but um, but that yeah that was his outlook which uh, but it, it's so he was both anti-plantation owner but racist at the same time so staying with the uh, Andrew Johnson administration let's add uh, Thaddeus Stevens to this equation and how does he play in all of this oh, no. <laughs> I mean he's one of the he, you couldn't have anyone someone more different from Andrew Johnson uh, Stevens is one of the great radicals of this era member of Congress important very important figure you know, he's almost like a Bernie Sanders. In other words, he represents the outer edge of political possibility. But in a time of crisis, what seemed impossible beforehand suddenly becomes real and realistic, you know, just like with Bernie. Things Bernie was proposing five years ago and people said, oh, he's crazy. Now they're putting them into effect. Same thing with Stevens. At the beginning of the Civil War, Stephen says, you know, people think this is going to be a nice, easy war. It isn't. We are going to have to arm black soldiers. Everyone said, no, are you crazy? Arm black soldiers? It happened, of course. We are going to have to use it, you know, fight for a long, long time to defeat the Confederates. That's what happened. And then, of course, he went further. We are going to have to take away the land of the big, rich Confederate planters and distribute it among the former slaves, 40 acres and a mule. You know, he's pushing for that. The only way to make people really free is to give them some economic, you know, foundation for their freedom. And uh, that never did get enacted. Uh, or there were some steps in that direction taken, but Stevens was never able to get Congress to approve it. But certainly without him, the 14th Amendment would not have been adopted. Um, the Reconstruction Acts giving the right to vote to black men would not have been adopted. Stevens is really one of the great Democrats, small d, of American history. And he also comes in an era where we see throughout American history where uh, you we have the three branches of government. And in the center, this and these are my words, in the center, there's this thing called political power. And... When there are times when that power ebbs, sometimes it ebbs over to the executive branch, sometimes it ebbs over um, to the uh, legislative branch. And uh, this is my view. Uh, sometimes both kick the cans and try to give it to the judiciary. But but isn't this a period where we actually see the political power ebbing really strongly to the legislative branch? Oh, absolutely. Partly because Andrew Johnson was so impossible. Congress very quickly decided we can't work with this guy. We're going to pass our plan over his vetoes. Johnson kept vetoing measures and they passed them over. It was the first time in American history that any significant laws were passed over the veto of the president. And then impeachment, of course, for the first time in American history. They basically just got fed up with Johnson. The problem with impeachment, as we have seen in the last couple of years, is that Many people think it requires a particular crime. You know, it, it requires the president to have clearly broken the law being incompetent being stupid being racist that's not enough for impeachment apparently uh or for conviction and you know even some republicans said well yeah johnson is completely impossible but he hasn't really broken the law so we can't get rid of him they failed by one vote you know to convict him and remove him from office but yes the legislature took over in this period and uh, marginalized johnson and uh, the, and Congress pushed forward with its own plans of reconstruction. You, you know, it's 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 not um, 
doesn't speak well of you when you um, go into it's not extensively the, the the Johnson Library in Tennessee and the actual impeachment vote where he won by a vote is is in is in on display. That doesn't say a lot about your presidency. No, you know, the, I also once long ago visited the Andrew. I think there's an Andrew Johnson homestead in the mountains of Tennessee. Beautiful, great Smoky Mountains. Um, but yeah, uh, unfortunately, some of those sites, uh, let me just put it this way, haven't gotten up with the modern views of reconstruction. They're, 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 they're rather too much of an excuse for Andrew Johnson. But anyway, um, but Johnson is, is marginalized and guys like Stevens and many other Republicans push forward with trying to make the, as Stevens said, you know, we have a chance to make this a perfect republic. We haven't been that yet because of slavery. We had 80 years or more of slavery warping the country. Now we have a chance to live up to what we claim are our values. Uh, they tried. They tried very hard. In the end, it didn't fully succeed, obviously. But um, to the extent that one other thing I want to say about Stevens, this is a guy who fought for black rights his whole life. It's not just in the Civil War. Back in the 1830s, he was in uh, he was a delegate to the constitutional convention of pennsylvania which met 1837 and one of the things they did was take the right to vote away from black uh, men in uh, pennsylvania there was a significant free black community in philadelphia and some other places and they had the right to vote along with white people until 1837 when it was taken away from them and Stevens refused to sign this constitution. He walked out. He said, I, I cannot sign a document which takes away these rights from fellow Americans. Now, there was no political benefit to Stevens in 1837 for standing up for the rights of black people. You weren't getting elected by doing that. But he was a man of principle. Uh, in your last answer, you mentioned uh, 40 acres and a mule. What is the legacy of that? Um, not only how, how the term originated, but how far did we get, let's say, with, uh, you know, with, with the efforts led by uh, General Oliver Howard? Yeah, well, um, General Howard was the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, which was an agency established by Congress in 1865, to, do, to oversee the whole transition from free, slavery to freedom, which is a pretty big job. The full title of the organization was the Bureau of Freedmen, that's the blacks, refugees, which is many whites who had to flee their homes, and abandoned lands. Right in the title is this issue of land. And the Freedmen's Bureau bill take over land which had abandoned in the South as planters fled and distribute it in small acreages to former slaves. Now, it's a little vague. It didn't say give it to them. It said rent it to them or settle them. But the idea of giving them land was out there. It was certainly demanded by the former slaves. The idea of 40 acres and a mule was echoed all throughout the South by the emancipated slaves. And, you know, there was progress made in that direction. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau settled some uh, African-Americans on land. General William T. Sherman, the term 40 acres and a mule actually originates with Sherman in January 1865. He uh, issued his field order 15, setting aside a lot of land on the coast of South Carolina and Georgia for the settlement of black 
uh, families, 40 acre plots plus a mule. And um, they were working that land. The pro this is one of the great crimes of Andrew Johnson. When Andrew Johnson came in, he ordered all that land given back to the white former owners. He didn't like the idea of black people gaining economic independence. So a lot of that effort to redistribute land was stymied by uh, President Johnson. Although it is also true, as I said, that then later Congress did not uh, succeed in, uh, in, in doing it either. That actually, your, part of your last answer sounds somewhat paradoxical because we earlier said that um, he blamed uh, the planters for the Civil War, uh, but yet um, I'm hearing you say in your last answer that he gave land back to the planters. So could, could you work out that paradox for us? <laughs> <laughs> well, Johnson is the hard guy to understand. You know, that it's a good point. Uh, he wasn't very consistent, really. But I think at the end of the war, Johnson figured out very fast you know, there was a lot of ferment and radicalism on the ground level. There were black people seizing land, driving their owner, the former owners off and claiming the land for themselves, you know, uh, holding political meetings for the first time in the South. And Johnson was very alarmed by this. And I think Johnson figured out very quickly that um, if you wanted to keep these former slaves under control, the only people who possibly could do it were the ex-planters. Uh, poor whites are not going to be able to do that. And moreover, Johnson was already thinking about his re-election, you know, or he had, that, that he would come up in 1868 for election as president. And he figured out that the, the poorer whites he had spoken for were not doing what he thought they should do, which is kick the planters out and take over, uh, that the planters were still at the top of white society and politics. And therefore, if you wanted to build up your own support in the South, that's the guys you wanted on your side. So, yeah, Johnson denounced the, the, the planters and then he went arm in arm with them to, to try to keep blacks uh, basically under control. What were the black codes and, and when did those go into effect? Well, you know, when one of the things Johnson did in 1865 was to set up these new governments in the South, all white, blacks had no voice uh, in them. And... Um, they passed these so-called black codes at the end of 1865, early 1866, which were laws, as, they, as the title suggests, they were laws that only applied to black people. They were laws for black, for the freed slaves. Here's this, that. Here's what their rights are, and here's what their responsibilities are. Their rights, they had almost none except the right to get married. All right, that's important. Under slavery, slave marriages could be broken up any time by the owner. Now marriages would be you know, legal, just like any other. Uh, but in terms of political rights, civil rights, no, nothing. And then the key was they, they had these uh, provisions to try to force the former slaves back to work on the plantations for white employers. Um, if a black, at the end of the year, every adult black man had to sign a labor contract with a white employer. You couldn't just work for yourself. If you didn't have a labor contract, you could be running a farm, doesn't matter, you're a vagrant, and you could be arrested and fined and leased out to work for a white employer. In other words, they're trying to use the power of the state government to get the plantation system going again with black people again as just laborers under white control. The black codes um, alarmed Northerners very much. First of all, black people hated them because they 
didn't they, they had no real relation to what black people thought of as freedom and um many northerners said well these rebels are trying to reintroduce slavery here we can't let them do that so the black codes were very important in discrediting johnson's reconstruction plan johnson didn't seem to complain at all when he saw these laws being passed to reduce african-americans to second-class citizenship um and i think that had a lot to do with congress saying we're taking over because this guy is running amok you know and, and when we're, we're going to have we're going to be back to the old south soon now was the response to that the uh civil rights act of 1866 was that was that the response yeah, to the black that, codes? that has a lot yeah that that has a lot to do with the black the reaction to the black codes the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is one of the most important laws in American history, the first civil rights law in our history. Um, first of all, it, it abrogated or just made the black codes illegal because one of the things it said was that all that laws have to apply equally to both black and white. You can't have one set of laws for one group of people and one set of laws for another group of people. So black codes are just not allowed. Um, and but also it started by saying anyone born in the United States is a citizen. All these black people are now citizens. Remember, in the Dred Scott decision before the Civil War, the Supreme Court had said no black person can be a citizen, only white people. Now, anybody born in the United States, with one or two exceptions, mainly Native Americans, because uh, they're considered citizen of their own tribal nation. Um, Anybody born in the country is a citizen, black, white, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your race is, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter what your language is, your religion. That's a very important principle that we had not respected before the, the Civil War. Um, and then it says, as I said, that the, the all these citizens, including blacks, have to have the same basic rights uh, to own property, to go to court, to testify, to sue, to be sued. In other words, to compete in the marketplace. They don't talk about political rights at this point, but it's to be a free person, you know, trying to make your way in the society and have laws that derail that. So it's a very important uh, law and it's still on the books. It never repealed. You know, I, I, I'm listening to your last answer. I'm already hearing, this is 1866, so we haven't got there yet, but I'm already hearing the underpinnings um, for the, the 14th Amendment and in addition to that, I'm just thinking sort of what you said earlier about Andrew Johnson. If you don't have Andrew Johnson uh, and this sort of tension with Fatty Stevens, if you don't have the black codes, do you have the 14th Amendment? I think you would. Uh, you're absolutely right. The 14th Amendment, in a certain sense, puts into the Constitution many of the principles of the Civil Rights Act. Remember, a law can be repe repealed by the next Congress. So you, if you want these things to be permanent, you better put them in the Constitution. Um, my general feeling is that um, uh, Lincoln would have gone along with this. I mean, Lincoln was a mainstream Republican. He wasn't a radical like Thaddeus Stevens, but he didn't get into big fights with Congress the way Johnson did. Every Republican virtually in Congress voted for the 14th Amendment. So, uh, you know, Lincoln wouldn't have stood up to the whole party the way uh, the way Johnson did. I think to go further, which they will in the following year and give the right to vote to black men in the South, that's where Lincoln might have hesitated because he had never really supported black suffrage except in a small way uh, before the Civil War. We don't know. This is all speculation, obviously. But um, 
But I think, you know, the 14th Amendment is the most important amendment ever added to the Constitution since the Bill of Rights. It, it puts this birthright citizenship into the Constitution. It puts equality for the first time into the Constitution. No state can deny to any person the equal protection of the law. It note any person, it's not only about citizens, anybody in the country, whether they're here legally, not, they're entitled to equal protection of the law. Um, and then it's got a whole series of other things which are, uh, one could go into, it's, it's very long. It tries to clear up all the questions that are raised by the end of the Civil War. For example, it says, Southerners are not going to get any money for having their slaves emancipated. Forget about that. No payment for, for the loss of your slave property. Moreover, if you loan money to the Confederacy, if you uh, bought Confederate bonds, forget about that money too. You're never getting it back. So, they, you know, they try to deal with these specific questions. Uh, there's a whole convoluted thing that states that deny black men the right to vote will lose some of their representation in Congress. Section two, never enforced, never enforced. Even today it should be enforced. These states that are taking away the right to vote from a lot of people, they should lose members of Congress for denying to citizens the right to vote. Um, never been enforced and I don't see anyone enforcing it right now either. You know, one of the things about our constitution is it is not self-enforcing somebody has to do that. Congress has never had the gumption to enforce Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. And then there's other parts, which I won't go into now. It's long, it's complicated, but it really is to try to try to get into power in the South people really loyal to the United States, uh, to the government, the, the rebels being pushed out. It didn't quite work, but that's what they're trying to do in part and to guarantee the basic rights of the former slaves. But but everyone living today is a disciple um, of the 14th Amendment, which sort of gets to the title of, of one of your books, the, the, you know, sort of the second founding. So we're all um, second founding disciples. Would that be accurate to put it that way? I hope so. <laughs> second founding, you know, the title of that book, I was trying to say, you know, yeah, there were three amendments. All right, there's been a lot of amendments, but... This is more than just a minor change in a, in a system. This is a new constitution that these amendments created, a constitution where individual Americans can now see the constitution as protecting their rights, the federal government protecting their rights, enforcing their rights against violations by the states. This is a fundamental change in the system of government that, that, we, uh, that we have. Um, so the yeah, as I said before, but very few people see it or understand it that way. If you ask your man or woman in the street, you know, what are the key documents of American history? Well, they'll probably say the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Emancipation Proclamation, but they're not going to say the 14th Amendment. Uh, they should. And if you ask them who are the founders of our Constitution, they'll mention Madison, they'll mention Hamilton. They're not going to mention John Bingham, author of the 14th Amendment. They're not going to mention Henry Wilson, author in part of the 15th Amendment. James Ashley, author of the 13th. In other words, those people who changed our Constitution have not become iconic figures in a way they really should be. Mm. 
Again, I'm speaking with Columbia University history professor Eric Foner about the impact of America's Reconstruction era officially 1861 to 1877. Uh, Professor Foner, it has often been suggested that the election of 1876, I think you referenced it earlier, between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden, that produced the Hayes-Tilden Compromise effectively ended Reconstruction. Is is that an oversimplification in your view? You know, I think looking back, you would say yes, but at the time, it wasn't so clear. People didn't know Reconstruction had ended or it could continue, you know. Um, So it was followed by a period which was kind of amorphous in the 1880s. Yes, it ended Reconstruction in the sense it was a symbol that the federal government was no longer going to intervene to protect the rights of former slaves, okay? Hayes pulls troops out of the South. There weren't a hell of a lot of troops left by this point, but he pulls troops out of the South, which is a symbol that white Southerners who now control all the Southern governments kind of have their own way with uh, internal things, whereas Republicans will be controlling uh, the presidency. Um, but, you know, people didn't know that was the case. Okay, uh, may, maybe four years from now, the federal government will come back in. with you know. So in other words, black people continue to vote in many parts of the South. They continue to hold office, not as many as in Reconstruction, but quite a few. Uh, it's really not till the 1890s that the federal government, and particularly the Supreme Court by then, has given the go-ahead, so, you know, forget these amendments, they have no meaning, we're not going to enforce them, and uh, you get the Jim Crow system being put in place. That's really, to my mind, the definitive end of Reconstruction, the 1890s, when a whole new system of disenfranchisement, of segregation, uh, etc., lynching, of course, uh, is put in place in the South. Uh, the, between the 1876 and then is a kind of a indeterminate period. Uh, Reconstruction is declining, but I wouldn't say it's totally over. What is the significance uh, of uh, Beaufort, South Carolina and the Reconstruction narrative? Yeah, Beaufort is a beautiful place. I've been there a good number of times. Um, it, it, It was one of the centers of black political power throughout this period. It was the home of Robert Smalls, a who became a hero during the Civil War when as a, he was a slave pilot in the harbor of Charleston. And one night with his family and some others, he sort of guided a little ship, the planter, out from Charleston, past Fort Sumter, and surrendered it to the Union Navy. He was dressed as a Confederate he, officer, was he not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and he became a big hero. And then after the war, he set up a political base in uh, Beaufort, and um, as I say, Buford was a sign of what kind of black political power was in existence in many parts, not all the South, but many parts of the South where there was a significant uh, black electoral majority. Um, and it lasted a lot longer there than other places. Smalls held a government job, the uh, collector of customs at uh, Buford, all the way down to 1913 when Woodrow Wilson came in and kicked all the black appointees out of the federal government. But that, that's, that's 50 years after the Civil War. So Buford is a sign of where black power really did take hold and last for a good while. Um, can we understand, 
And you sort of touched on this earlier, but I'm going to come back to it. Can we understand the history of America up to the present moment without uh, a firm grasp on this period of Reconstruction? I don't think we can. Uh, that's why I've written a whole bunch of books about Reconstruction. I've curated a museum exhibition. I lecture or talk or answer questions. I think it's critical to our understanding of our history. And, you know, I, I have seen, as you know, in the old days, 50, you know, er, the earlier view of historians long ago was that Reconstruction was a big mistake. Black people were just not capable of taking part in government. Therefore, there was corruption, misgovernment, etc. Uh, and the result, and therefore that proved that the white South was justified in taking away uh, the right to vote from black people, which it did around 1900 or so. Um, history has a, has a kind of burden on the present. This misconception of reconstruction helped to legitimize the Jim Crow system, which replaced reconstruction. Uh, and, um, that's another reason why people need to know what really happened. Because if you think that, well, Reconstruction was such a disaster because black people had the right to vote, you'd be sitting like in Texas. So, well, let's take the right to vote away from them, you know, because they don't know what to do with it. Um, so, uh, so the answer is, yeah, we do. People do need to know something about Reconstruction to understand both what was accomplished and the violent backlash that uh, came after that. And, and when we look at the sort of outcome that you just outlined, how much do we place on the fact that the North, in many respects, became weary of Reconstruction? Yeah, I, 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 unfortunately, that's certainly the case. I mean, I think the white South showed more stamina, so to speak, in opposing black rights than the North did in, uh, in continuing to uh, protect them. Now, there are many, many reasons for that, which it's hard to go into in great detail. You know, one big reason was there was an economic depression that began the Panic of 1873 and then several years of economic depression. Um, and, um, you know, that shifted attention away from the South and the issues of black rights to employment, unemployment, you know, business failures, that kind of thing. Uh, but also, as I said, you know, this is relevant to the present, too. What happens when you have people's rights under the control of a conservative Supreme Court? You can run through a whole series, I'm not going to give it one by one, of Supreme Court decisions in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, which whittled away, whittled away at the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And by 1900, those amendments were dead letters in the South with the acquiescence of the Supreme Court. So... Um, uh, yeah, there was a retreat or, or a lack of commitment or whatever you want to call it uh, in the North. It, this was a national problem. It wasn't just the South, even though the vast majority at that point of African-Americans lived in the South. Hmm. Uh, so when we look at the valor of the civil rights movement, um, say the, 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 the tragedy of the, the, of the mass shooting in Charleston or even some of the high profile police shootings in the last um, several years, um, and not to mention, the, I forgot the, the legacy of the Confederate monuments. Are those episodes part of this continuum that you've been talking about that connects us to the, from the present moment back to the Reconstruction era? Yeah, I mean, we're still fighting over the meaning of the Civil War, the meaning of slavery, the meaning of Reconstruction. 
you know, one of the things about the monuments that has always struck me is how few monuments there are to black leaders of Reconstruction. You know, there were something like 2,000 African-American men held some public office in Reconstruction. Uh, I don't think more than five or six of them have a monument or a statue anywhere in the South. Uh, but you got hundreds and hundreds of these Confederate generals who were fighting to maintain slavery. Uh, in other words, you've got a complete warping of history. I'm not saying every Confederate thing should come down, but I'm saying it's right now it's totally one-sided. The Confederacy is part of Southern history, but the Reconstruction is also part of Southern history, but it doesn't get any monuments or statues. Uh, there's no statue of Hiram Revels, the first black senator. There's no statue of, uh, there is a little bust of Robert Smalls in Beaufort. That's one of the very few ones in the South. But, you know, uh, Robert E. Lee on his horse, there's no black guy with a big statue like that, you know. Um, so the, 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 the white South in the Jim Crow era chose what it wanted to commemorate in history. And it was a very biased choice and we're still fighting over that right now and, and, and that and we haven't even touched on the um, the lost fit the lost uh, cause of the confederacy myth yeah, the lost cause well th this was part of the era of the lost cause the rewriting of history to glorify the confederacy to deny that it that the civil war was based was really about slavery and to say that reconstruction was a disaster that was part of the lost cause ideology and also that slavery wasn't really all that bad you know uh that actually it was an important way of uh, civilizing savage people from africa or something like that uh all that was a rewriting of history which stuck in our textbooks for a long long time and we're still trying to get rid of it now how many books have you written on reconstruction in some f shape form or fashion i don't know i, I don't know uh, you, if you have <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not counting them. There's, there's several. Let's just say several. Uh, you, uh, if you ask me what I had for lunch yesterday, I say, I don't know. So when I ask someone how many books they've written on a subject, they say, I don't know. I'm going to go. You, you've written quite a few. Well, the, I have. But the point, the point being, and the reason I posed that question to you, sir, what is it that beckons you about this, about this subject? Well, let me start by saying that W.E.B. Du Bois, whose great book, Black Reconstruction in America, back in the 1930s, began the process of elevating Reconstruction in our history and undercutting the racist mythologies of Reconstruction. Du Bois was actually a friend of my parents. And I heard about Du Bois. I met him once. Uh, he was much older, obviously. But, um, uh, you know, I learned about Black Reconstruction at home. Just my my father was a historian. My uncle Philip was a historian, um, and so I had I kind of had an by osmosis and interest in history, in Reconstruction. I mean, and uh, but I think the main point really is simply its relevance to the present moment. I mean, when I was in graduate school in the nineteen sixties, the civil rights revolution was taking place in the streets. And many of us felt we, we've got to study where this came from. You know, in my high school history, they never mentioned slavery at all, hardly. They never mentioned Reconstruction at all. Uh, where did this ferment in the streets come from? Some the, the civil rights era is sometimes called the second Reconstruction. And um, in other words, the present helps to determine what you're interested in in history, explaining how we got to the present. So I think that's part of why I find this 
uh, so important to study. Mm. It, you know, one of my favorite quotes, um, you know, really comes from Benjamin Rush, and, and Rush argues that the American Revolution was not a war, it was, you know, but it was an ongoing process. This thing called the American Experiment is ongoing. Could we say something similar about Reconstruction, that it wasn't this period from 1861 to 1877, but something that in fact is ongoing? Well, that's what I said at the beginning. Remember that it's a process, not just a couple of dates. Um, and, you know, each of the three great amendments, 13, 14, and 15, ends with a section that says, Congress shall have the power to enforce this amendment. That means it's going to be ongoing. It gives to Congress, keep an eye out. If you, do, if you think they're trying to restore slavery, do something about it. If you think they're trying to deny black people civil rights, you have the power to do something. If you think they're trying to deny black people the right to vote, you're empowered to change that. So that built into those amendments is the possibility of continuing legislation, continuing action to make the promises that are in there real. So, yeah, so that that means we're still living in Reconstruction in some ways. Professor Eric Foner, Columbia University, thank you for joining me today on the public rally. It's an honor to be in conversation with you, sir. Well, thank you. I'm happy to talk to you. This episode concludes another season of the public rally. We will return in September with more judicious conversation from America's leading thinkers. The public rally welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. ¶¶